The Counterculture Hour with host V. Vale, produced by Marion Wallace for Research TV. Today's guest, German experimental documentary filmmaker, Peter Semple. Okay, welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale, and today we're especially privileged to have with us, all the way from Hamburg, Germany, the underground filmmaker, Peter Semple. He's here in town to show two of his latest 90-minute documentaries free at the Goethe Center downtown at 530 Bush Street. He's part of sort of the Deutsch-American friendship that's been happening over the past century. Peter Semple first came to my attention because he was associated with my favorite counterculture movement, the punk rock movement. And of course, all artists want to say they transcend such things as punk rock, but I am very curious about how punk started in Germany, and especially Hamburg more than Berlin. And uh, that is what I want to ask you, Peter. Like, you were there at the beginning, but how the heck did you find out about it? I wouldn't think there was that much in German translated from English, you know, from New York and London where ostensibly punk rock started. How, did you, how did you find out about punk? A friend took me there. <laughs> to a we concert? We had in Hamburg a, a concert hall called Markthalle, and nearly any punk band that came from London going to Berlin everywhere, they came to Amsterdam and Hamburg first, so we actually saw them as first in Germany. Ted Kennedy's, anything, Susan Banshee's, uh, you name them, they were all came to Hamburg. Tuxedo Moon and um, Clash, any any of these. All. I also I saw all concerts, end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. Sounds good? Wow. But my hobby was going to the opera and to the punks afterwards, you know this, right? I like music, all kinds of worlds. Of course, they often tell you the same story, right? But punk those days was really... Very extreme, I can tell you. It did turn the world around a bit. Then again, not so much for me, because I was reading Nietzsche and Camus and all that stuff. Why are you smiling? Because I, I think the same way. There is a philosophical, historical background behind punk. Yeah, but you mentioned the right words, Nietzsche, Camus. You didn't say, for example, um, Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in my new film about Jonas Mekas, uh, we mentioned that Jonas Mikas actually met Heidegger for a little moment. Whoa. But then he was lost in the nothing. <laughs> oh. Just for a little moment. So let's go back to the the so-called early, earliest punk days. I suppose by then you were in Hamburg. Right. And I know that, um, that you were associated with... Um, Nina Hagen, let's say. She's kind of the most famous German punk singer to come to San Francisco. She's the mother of German punk, yeah. So just tell, try to show me the little social scene, because I've been to Hamburg, and to me it's like San Francisco. It's kind of small. Yeah, it's yeah. not like New York City, <laughs> you know, and everyone kind of knows each other, and it's on the water like yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. And... So, where were the punk shows there, or were there? In the Markthalle, actually the main place. There were some other here, three, four, five places. Oh, that, that's a lot. It is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
maybe it's interesting to know that I got to know them also because I was the only one who had a car, a little VW <laughs> Beetle, dark red. And after the concert, they couldn't always pay their uh, taxi, so I drove the people here and there. People in bands? Of the bands, yeah. Okay. Blixo, Nico, Nina, or their names. <laughs> so we became friends because I was the driver. I'm joking a bit, but... So that was your contribution, kind of, to the punk scene. Well, I'm going to make films. And you went to concerts, too, but you filmed concerts as well. I didn't film many concerts, actually. I'd like to see the concert as such. <laughs> and I used lots of the music of these bands from their records, mm. with their permission, of course, and with contracts with the companies. Actually, most most problem was getting the contracts for the music rights. But yeah. the musicians themselves help quite often. They give Peter that rights. So not always that it's cheap, but you know you have to strive for it and then you make it. So when you make your films, do you have a plot or you must have an outline or do you? Or you know, how do you do all your filming and then editing? Well, you have a main idea, a subject, Jonas Mekas or Kazuon or whoever. Mainly my films are about people. Okay. Then again. I film them two years, and while I film them, I find out about them and what's behind them. Because I don't make a film if I know everything before. I just know it's a fantastic subject. Then I take the camera, and while doing it, I learn about them, and then I put it all together with the editing. Editing is really three, four, five months' work. <laughs> it's not that easy as it looks. <laughs> and Dandy, my most well-known film, was, of course, my dream. Get all the heroes of my music world as you know, the names are into one film, and film around the world, right? Cairo, Ganges, Himalaya, Tokyo, <coughs> Madrid, New York, Paris, Hamburg, Berlin, London, and you put them all together and uh, it just happens. <laughs> but you have a main idea, right? The main idea was actually, you know the story Candide by Voltaire? Vaguely. I well, in, what was it, 18th century or 19th yeah. Something like that. He was that. a young man, 7 or 18 years old. He roamed through the world and find, was, wanted to find out what's life about, what's the world about. And to make the story short, as far as, far as I understand, he uh, saw tons of killing and murdering and exploiting and, and maybe 10% love. And I thought... Voltaire sees well like I do, or I see it like he does. So this is how I did my made my film Dandy. Although Dandy's probably more positive. Yeah. Then again, you have the song by Blixa Baga, Tattoos and Dandy. Death is a Dandy. And Dandy is an important subject because uh, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with decadence, right? And if you watch World of Today or <laughs> last year or many years ago, it's becoming more and more decadent somehow. Really? You think so? The whole world? Well, because the whole world is being pushed into one, into one mainstream and one main... Uh, you know what I'm trying to say? Something is definitely wrong, but I don't... It's such a huge issue to discuss because, you know, as Gerald Lanier said, how can you expect high-quality, especially really independent maverick art to keep coming out when there isn't it's, it, the only way you can make a dime is to tour with your artwork or tour with your music or tour with your film or your paintings or or make a... Well, paintings, if you're lucky, you have a gallerist and he sells them for you, right? But otherwise... Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I've been filming lots of paintings, right, for the film Animals of Art. Oh, oh, yeah. that's about paintings. <clears throat> lots of paintings. Of animals. Yeah. No, not of animals. <laughs> no, no, the painters are animals. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I've filmed lots of artists, and these artists are animals in my view. That's why the film is called Animals of Art. Oh, you thought there are many animals in the film. Yeah. They are too. <laughs> but mainly, I filmed quite, again, famous artists in Germany because they asked me to. I was asked. And it just happened that it was like a snowball. I have many quite well-known and some non-known artists from Germany in this film. You'll like it. you see it tomorrow. Pretty sure. And Jonathan Mieser and Daniel Richter are two of the pop stars of German art scene. And I filmed them because, well, I know... Daniel Richter is very famous in Germany. Hmm. He used to, he started painting covers for punk rock bands. Oh, in the right. 80s. you mean the albums? Albums, yeah, the albums. Huh. He, he painted the covers. He still does for some um, punk bands. So he's a pretty good guy, I think. Great. He didn't forget where he came from, more or less. Yeah, yeah. That does happen. That's why I wanted to hear more about the early German uh, punk company, scene. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's di got to have happened differently. San Francisco had happened different than in New York mm. or London. Yeah. Like, l almost no publicity here for two years. Okay, the real underground for almost two years. Mm. And there's some advantages to not so much publicity. When Just do a story. Yeah, when, when a movement's starting out. And everyone seems to be afraid of it, which is crazy. Maybe you remember, you remember the band DAF, Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah DAF. They are on tour again since two, three years. Yeah. And the point is they're still doing with, with their fun and their vibes, their energy. They're, they're still tough. They're not just doing it for the money. Good. Well, that could be a reason, but they have, we are into it, too. Good. Well, you're supposed to at least have, be having some kind of fun once in a while. Otherwise, why live? No, I'm just kidding. Well, we live for a lot of reasons. One is anger, because you are so mad about the way things are. You're not, you, you know, you still want to do something about it. Anger is definitely a motivation to do creative work. I'm just when you see say that, I just saw Kenneth Anger in front of me. He was wearing <laughs> a red pullover with anger on it. Good, good. Was, was uh, how do you say what? What do you call this? Embroidered. Uh, no, when you make a pullover. Knit. It was knit by Japanese fans. That's great. And I met him somewhere and he was wearing a light red, red pullover with anger on it right across his breast. So you knew who, you knew was, who he was. That's branding. <laughs> Good for him. Well, he deserves, he deserves to... I'm amazed he's still alive because... He's one of the first independent filmmakers I ever saw. Well, I think he's younger than Jonas Makers a couple of years. But oh, all the same, Jonas over 90, right? It's tough. Yeah, yeah, good for Kenneth Anger. Wow. And yeah, he's one of the first I've ever to put. Me hey, he's one of the fathers of music video. He is, yeah. I never thought of that yeah. till this second. <clears throat> he put music on the pictures or film without having a special but, story, just or, the atmosphere, the energy, and the yeah, atmosphere. You say that? Well, he had that. Mo what was that famous motorcycle gang film with all those great songs, like from the sixty early sixties, like "He's a Rebel" and "I'll Never Ever Be okay. Any Good." And 
what was the name of that one? I know, uh, that is such a classic film, and I'll bet you he didn't even get the rights for the music then. I'll just bet. Well, those days, we didn't even know we have to have music rights. My yeah. first films, I just took the music I liked. Yeah. I didn't know there are music rights. Wow. My very first film. What a nightmare. I didn't even know that you can, uh, you can mix the sounds. I always did hard editing. <laughs> <laughs> People like this film very much. It's called Fixjund, um, Save the Children. <laughs> 20 minutes is that an ironic and, title and Jonas is one of my best films Jonas Mikas really Save the Children Super 8 yeah. Super I edited eight. it on my kitchen table I, I started editing Monday morning and finished without sleep Friday afternoon wow well, I was so young those days <laughs> you were strong then no, that's a, yeah. wow that's cool and are, is every film you've ever made available except for the Poe one <sighs> I mean, the, I mean, on digital or something? Yeah, they're all on digital, yeah. And oh, they are? Some are on 35, 60mm, on DVD, on the um, new one I'm filming on HD, right? So oh, right. It mixes. But there are some people that want to have a whole box of old films. That would be a good idea, right? Yeah, yeah, complete films in one box set. Just tons of work to organize it. And it yeah, does cost should, some money, too. That's true. But it should be possible, maybe... Not too far future. Maybe you can't even talk about how you've kept going so long and not stopped the way so many people I know quit, but you didn't. Yeah, well, it was the only chance. <laughs> I have no other chance and do what I do. I can't sit down and think, what will I do now? It just rolls through, more or less, yeah. Oh, I, w I would agree with that. I mean, it's, 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 it seems to become harder and harder to stay kind of what I would call counterculture against the status quo without, you know, the, all the successful young artists seem to, they have like branding and merchandising deals with big corporations and, and um, there's some seamless integration between what you call marketing and branding and being a creative artist. And everyone's heavily into collaborations, as many as possible, which is, I'm not necessarily against any of this, necessarily. But, uh, there, you know, there are occasionally times when you, when you get sick of having a camera trained on you or taking selfies. You know, you just want to live. So it's, but, but here, this is a funny thing because both of us, that's what we do. We video, we, we participate in the making of videos, films, and we're trying to give some kind of alternative way to live in our films, I think. Would you not agree? Yeah. Then again, I myself go very seldom in front of cameras. I want to be behind the camera. So if I'm sitting with you, it's because I like your work so much. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant now. I, in Germany, they more have had asked me several times for interviews or to make a film about me. Although I'm not that important, I know that. But all the same, I said, no, I don't want to be in front of the camera. I'm rather behind the camera. Hmm. I never thought of that. I just do... You well, know, you're different. You, yeah, that's true. I, I'm different. Well, I, well, I didn't start out in life wanting to be in front of the camera. It's just that I love the idea of conversations. Yeah, that's you fair know, enough. and there's, 
I apparently have to be in front of the camera to be part of the conversation, at least more or less. So, I, I mean, I, the reason I like conversations more is because my ideal is that you're, whoever you talk to is, is not giving you a bunch of canned speeches that they, that they sweated over beforehand. They're like actually giving you the first thought. You know where or, you can hear the loudest music without it, it hurting your ears? In the cathedral. Huh? Oh, <laughs> yes. maybe. I love those pipe organs. That's what I'm saying. I had a pipe organ concert some time ago. It was so unbelievable loud, and it didn't hurt. It just yeah. took you away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like all kinds of music. I'm curious about everything. I mean, it's not some cliched notion about if you're into punk rock, that's all you like. Uh -huh. You've got to be curious about every single thing that, that ever happened. <laughs> that's a bit much, maybe. <laughs> well... Yes and no. That was in the Münster Dome, by the way, in between. Where I saw this pipe concert. Huh. Ogre concert. Unbelievable. One of the strongest music, music concerts in my life, actually. I don't even know yeah. what it was. I forgot which music it was. Maybe it was Handel or Bach. I wouldn't know now. I think yeah. it was Polish, actually. Anyway. I know. There's probably a lot of Baroque organ music we don't know about because the composers weren't as famous as Bach. Yeah. And they can take you away. They yeah. might, that's the reason to go to a concert, right? You get taken away into another world. Absolutely. And, uh, you forget your daily life. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's because you're a surrealist and you're sick of realism and you want to go somewhere else. Because Even if these bands are protesting against your daily life, you, you're happy, right? <laughs> Although it depends, right? Well, no, we didn't want to be happy. We just want to be thankful and glad, if possible. Is that enough for you? I, I particularly feel that, for me at least, punk rock was the last international, spontaneous, sort of naive art movement counterculture to arise. And I really haven't seen evidence of any other that I participated in, and I know nothing about in the Western world. In the Western world, I know nothing about hip hop. Or there's one million other movements I've heard of involving DJs and electronics and all this. But you know, there's like principles that I like of trying to stay as anti-authoritarian as you can be, and of course, I like hands-on doing it myself as much as possible. But I will take help. <laughs> but before I forget, don't you think that these musics like trans, techno, etc., they are somehow a protest too against the norms of society? Well, they could be. I mean, if they're truly trans state, because I think the trans state is kind of forbidden still. Because I think if you can reach a trans state, which is very rare and it's usually with music, and I don't even want to go into drug taking. But if you can reach it in live music performance situation, there you do feel a certain ecstasy that I don't know if it's forbidden or not, you know. But it's not. I would say it's not exactly normal, mm. you know, as a goal for society. I mean, oh yeah, I'm very interested in trance musics, quote unquote, from all over the world. Mm. But I, I'm not convinced that it's 
a goal in, ever in Western society and philosophy. Punk was actually the thing. I, I think yeah. punk, yeah, for me at least, because it was, at least in the beginning, it was so spontaneous. What do you think when you see it now, the ladies in Beverly Hills are running around like punks? I don't care. I don't well, care. I, I mean, I, I don't care because it's style, and it's ed it's still kind of edgy, apparently, okay. which is weird, but it is. Mm. And and what I like the the most is there's still 14-year-olds trying to start punk bands. So if that, and no one told them to, you okay. know, but they got the idea somehow, and they're still trying, and the songs are usually some kind of protest. Mm. That's it. When I interviewed the Cramps a long time ago, they they said, yeah, punk really was folk music. It really was protest music. And I said, wow, I hadn't tied punk to p folk music, i.e. anyone can, very simple songs, you know, not a huge emphasis on technology and technique mm -hmm. and virtuosity, mm -hmm. you know, but like simple but kind of anthemic at best. And... Um, if I think anyone who can come up with a song or two, they've really made a contribution. Because I don't think it's easy. I used to wear a Cramps t-shirt so often, it actually fell off my body, really. Really? <laughs> Good <laughs> for you. I mean, strips and later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, I love the Cramps. I mean, they used to come up here to every um, Halloween, they'd play the Fillmore Auditorium until Lux passed away. Did you ever interview them too? Oh yeah, surely. Uh, surely for my, especially for my Incredibly Strange Music book, because they were amazing record collectors of obscure Americana, yeah. you know, 45 singles. Very hard to find music, often regional, mm -hmm. like the 45s would be made in a small town and hardly any got national. They collected stuff. They sought out music like this. Talking about this, do you know who Harry Smith is? Of course, what an amazing American, I mean in several ways, <clears throat> like uh, like the way he just attracted all this could have easily been lost American folk music history and then got in a position to even reduce, produce compilation um, anthologies of music that would have surely have been lost. And you know, he's a subject in my film about Jonas Mikas, right? Well, tell us about it. Yeah, my newest film, Jonas in the Jungle, is about Jonas Mikas, a hero of film avant-garde in New York, and he was an old friend of Harry Smith. They all lived in the Chelsea Hotel years ago. And special guest in the film is Patti Smith, who reads, who talks about uh, Harry Smith and reads Ginsburg poems to support the Harry Smith Library that mm. Jonas Mekas has wanting to be built since 10 or 20 years and he's still on it. Jonas is now 91, 92. He's still working on, uh, at his anthology film archives in New York <coughs> to build a Harry Smith Library. He's still on it. He doesn't Great. give up. Great. And that's a highlight in my film, of course, with Patty Smith supporting this. I'd like to mention that. No, that's, that's relevant to our mm. audience. Harry Smith is quite a guy. Tell me a little more about him. I mean, I know he's associated with with researching and preserving and reissuing American 
folk music, they call it. But there's more about him. Cinema, I think. There's a cinema mm -hmm. aspect to him. You should ask me about Jonas Mikas. Oh, okay. We can switch tacks and ask you about Jonas Mikas, who is also, I think, a little underappreciated and unknown in America. Still? But you're German, yeah. so, so you see our country more clearly in some ways than us Americans. Well, you know, Jonas is a refugee from Lithuania, actually. Oh, that's right. Came to New York in 1949. Started a little cinema, uh, anthology film archives, and became, I think, the biggest, most important art film, independent film archives in North America, right? Archive, yeah. Important is also Martin Scorsese, who supports him a lot. He's also in the film. That's great. Scorsese is actually most important, I think, of the commercial people who want to support the independent and art films, very important. So, Jonas was the first person actually also to take, uh, as far as I know, Scorsese to his first interview when he had finished his film being a student. His, fin his last film was called Who's That Knocking at My Door? You know that film? No, I don't. One of Scorsese's best films. I hope I'm not saying too much now. <laughs> when he finished his studies, huh. and Jonas took him to the first radio interview. interview. <laughs> And so they're many years good friends. And the way Scorsese talks about the importance of film avant-garde and independence is wonderful. And Jonas Mikas, of course, anyway, right? <laughs> I met Jonas in New York, 1989, because he was the only person in New York to show my film Dandy. You know my film huh? Dandy with Nick Cave, Blix, Sanina Hung, Lena Lovitch, uh, you don't know what. And uh, I went in New York to every cinema, please show my film Dandy. I was in every office, every bureau. I was really on my knees, really. Please show my film. And everyone said no. Wow. And I was about to give up what you shouldn't do. I don't do either. Normally, I was going to give up. And then someone says, why don't you go to the archives? But that's an archive. Well, they have screening rooms too. I didn't know. So mm -hmm. I go to Jonas, giving my VHS those days. He looks at Dandy and says, well, I like that film a lot. We're going to show it. And then uh, Nick Bixer came to for the premiere. It was great, of course. And... Uh, the film was shown very often, and the box office actually paid my flight, hotel, and extra money. That was in the 1890s, beginning of the 90s. You won't have that nowadays. Impossible. So we became friends through working together. Right? Yeah. And of course, we had the same understanding for many things, I think, I hope, for poetry and literature and film and music, of course, <laughs> and red wine. <laughs> yeah, Jonas is a big hero, I think, in the world of film. So 1994, I made my first one about him called Jonas in the Desert. Mm. 2002, Jonas at the Ocean. And now <laughs> 2012, of uh, 13, Jonas in the Jungle. <laughs> and he saw the film just a year ago in Hamburg with his son Sebastian. That was a big delight for me, right? In Hamburg, in the big mm. cinema metropolis again. Mm. And he says, Peter, well, you know, we have to do part four, don't you? And I do hope <laughs> he'll make it. He's such a tough guy. End of the 90s, when he's 100, we'll make part four. It's a good chance, really. Let's knock on wood and hope that happens. So what would that be, Jonas in the Arctic or Jonas in... Uh, Jonas in the music. Not bad, I didn't mean. In the music? I don't know yet. Okay. We'll yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about it after it comes out. Yeah, of course. But the idea's not bad, is it? And So you've, we done, you've done a trilogy we, on it. Yeah, we were just talking about punk and what's behind it. When you think about yeah. Jonas, he was came to New York forty nine. And in all these years he's a good example of someone who follow who follows his ideals, although he's in the 
capital of capitalism, right? New York. I mean, this is unbelievable how he did this, right? And on the same hand, in my new film, he says, be careful with ideals, because many people, they believe so strongly in their ideals, they even take a gun to, right? And that's going too, too, too far, right? So, ideals is a two-way story, too. Well, you know? Because you're an idealist, too, but you wouldn't take a gun, would you? <laughs> aren't well, you, or aren't you not? Well, you know, I think most of my life I've been what you call a platonic idealist. That sounds good. But then I read Nassim Taleb, who's kind of, I don't know, an economist. And I read his book, The Black Swan, and, and some interviews and things. And then I, I liked his idea of being more a skeptical empiricist. Skeptical or realist? No, skeptical. Isn't it the same? Well, skeptical means you're you, you're always questioning. You're always doubting, even yourself, I suppose, a little bit. Even though, as we you and I both know, it takes an extreme amount of passion to get any project done. Concentration and passion. Time and energy. <laughs> well, that's that's what it takes. Yeah. Focus mm -hmm. and drive. So, but. When it comes to any media I read, I'm always skeptical. I don't, bolt, quote, believe anything. And I always wonder what the motive is of the writer and the publication or the TV show or whatever. I mean, I certainly don't take, you don't take anything at face value if you're punk rock. One of my favorite songs by Motorhead, you know I made a film about Lemmy, Motorhead? Oh, did you? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, he, he was in uh, Search and Destroy magazine, I put him He's in. He's my only film where I didn't do any art. What do you film. mean, didn't do any art? Well, there's no artistic work of mine. I didn't put in birds flying through the air. Or <laughs> it's just straight, maybe, right? Huh. And my favorite film, film song is... Uh, one of my favorite songs is I Don't Believe a Word. The yeah. way he s And the way he sings it. <sighs> you know that song? No, mm, I don't. You should listen to it later. I Don't Believe a Word. <clears throat> and again, I have to believe something now and then, right? Otherwise, I believe it. I guess if anything, it's the philosophy of punk rock. <laughs> but what is it? I'll tell you what it is. Please. From from my standpoint, and you correct me or add, the first thing I think is black humor. Because when you looked at the original punk rock, the clothes, the stances, the interviews, the song lyrics, it's black humor. It's you don't surely you don't take that at face value. Second thing, very very tied into that is anti-authority, anti-authoritarian, anti-status quo thinking. At least you question. You're always questioning. You're not taking status view, uh, viewpoints, philosophy, r news reporting, anything at face value. So, and then then I suppose the third I place as do-it-yourself. Because, no, you weren't rich enough to pay people to do it. You had to do it yourself, whether it's making music, film, putting out a zine, anything. You had to do it yourself because you didn't have the money to put out, to hire slaves to do all this. So, whereas most people put DIY first, do it yourself, I put it third. And I suppose there's probably some more to this philosophy. But... Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of, you know, trying to get stuff done if you can, 
I mean, you had, I've met so many people who tell me about what they're going to do and they never do it. So, you know, keep trying, keep your mouth shut about what you're doing until after it's done. Then you can tell people. I don't want to jinx it by talking about projects before they're done. So there's all these little modus operandi's associate to me that are part of punk rock. What would Oscar Wilde say about punk rock? I think he was kind of punk rock in some ways because of his, his very, he had a pretty dark sense of humor. And of course, he was an outsider too. And, you know, he, you weren't supposed to be gay then, for example. There, there's a reason we still know who he is because his quotations books refuse to die. But yeah, let's talk about culture. Like, um, I mean, there's, to me, there is such a thing as what was punk rock culture before the word even existed. And so I kind of, and regardless of what country, I like to you apply know the crowd the, rock people in Germany. The the who? Crowd rock. You mean like Craftwork? Um, no, Faust, for instance. You know that? Oh, they're earlier. Yeah, Those are before punk rock. Yeah, that's what I mean. And so, yeah, I I do know something about mm. German kraut rock, as you call it. Although we didn't quite call it that, we just called it German electronica. Okay. Yeah. But what? You brought it up, though. Where were you going well, I was just it? wondering if you know them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was trying to be subversive in this, or, or trying to just identify the change in society that's being brought about by technology. I mean, this is like, we don't really quite have a punk critique yet of the massive, massive life-changing that's been brought to us just through the internet and and the cell phone, both. Well, they're both combined now. I mean, one thing I find very disturbing is that there's absolutely no need to memorize a thing from now on because anything you need to know in one second, you can call it up in your iPhone. Yeah, you, you don't need a memory anymore is what yes, I'm saying. Yes, you do. I will never see your smile on my iPhone. Well... <coughs> You, you could if you're on Skype. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, look, I make a big distinction between virtual and real life. And I much prefer our being this close in the same room rather than on Skype, you know, you in Hamburg, yeah. me here. <clears throat> and I'm, I'd much rather be with people in person than some kind of strange email relationship, you know, where you're pecking away at each other. and Or the, the weirdest sort of parasitical relationships that people form now, I think, are on Facebook, which I consider a drug and a very powerful drug as addicting as heroin because... You're always, people are always sending you like old photos of yourself when you were a kid you didn't even know existed and, and photos of themselves at all ages. And then they're always sending, you know, if they have the money to travel, they're always sending gorgeous travel photos. And I did read something that, to the effect, it's not my original idea, that Facebook is a massive 
generator of discontent and envy in our world. Because especially these people who can afford to travel all the time and have pictures of themselves with with either celebrities or gorgeous locations, you know, and then I've read in this article that, yeah, this generates a lot of envy. Also, you hardly uh, see uh, critical statements in Facebook. They're always trying to be friendly, mainly, don't you think? Critical of what? Facebook? No. Well, that would be okay, but no, any, any subject. Yeah, there are people who try. Just few. Yeah, not many, and they're little soundbitey things. You know, I think there are people who are still trying to wake you up with their little tiny posts on Facebook. But I, I regard, you know, Facebook as so addicting that I try never to check it until night. You know, and then there's other people who say, never check your email before 1 p.m. Save the morning for like a sustained concentration a creative project where you, where you're not going to be constantly checking the internet, you know, like writers especially. You well, know how hard it is. Well, to I'm, write. On, I'm, I'm on this tour since eight days. I haven't looked at anything in Facebook because it's difficult with my iPhone. So since eight days, I'm not on Facebook. That's not bad actually. Good for you. But you know, I'm haunted by that famous statement: the internet is here for us to take advantage of it. I just don't really know how to take maximum advantage of it. I really don't. Because I've, I'm a fan of Jaron Lanier who said, as far as he knew, the internet seems to have literally taken away millions of jobs from people. Writers, sound engineers. Um, years ago I saw this, this advertising in a, on a wall in America, you say? It's huge letters. It says, "Your happiness is our business." I thought, oh, damn, yeah. <laughs> "That is scary." No, your happiness is your own business. I could tell you about my newest project. Right? Yeah, let's hear it. Well, after I made uh, animals of art with these, let me show you the post one moment. Lots of German artists from Jonathan Mieser, director Neolo, Bargard is in it, reading Nietzsche. We have this poster here. Can you see it? Lots of art from the Kunsthalle Hamburg, many studios in Germany and around the world. I also filmed in Miami, Basel at the art fair. Right. And the next day at the Everglades. So swamps all over the place. Oh, you went to Art Basel, Miami. Yeah, it was really, if you make a film about art, it's a place to look, of course, too, right? Well, there's a lot in one place, yeah. Yeah, and then I made this film on Jonas Mikas. Can you see this? Jonas, the hero of film avant-garde, of uh, film, music, poetry, and independent people. Independence everywhere. <laughs> and um, my newest project, again, no money film. I'm really unhappy yet somehow, but I have to do it, because I know him since 30 years. Is a German jazz musician called Peter Brotzmann from Wuppertal. He's You're so fantastic. I'm not a jazz expert, actually, but I saw him already 30 years ago, and I wow. film him nearly every year, once or two times on the side. And two years ago, we met again, and we just found out I have to do this film about him. Again, I have a little grant in Hamburg. Great. But, yeah, I actually filmed here in San Francisco half a year ago, right? And Peter is uh, one of the last, how would you say, 
How can you put free it jazz? Words? They call it. Yeah, he's actually an icon of free jazz in Germany and Europe worldwide. He has big influence on young jazzers too, and uh, in Germany. I've already finished. I'm in the middle of editing. Actually, I'm not even here. I'm actually in, the, in deep editing of this film, and it's a big honor to film these people, of course, too, right? I agree. And they're happy that I filmed them too somehow because they know that I'm really serious and about what I'm doing. I'm not doing it for, you know, yeah, to have any kind of limelight and big dollars. It's not necessary. The main thing is you really get that done that you think's important, this or that way. Yeah, you took me to the Peter Bratzman um, improvisatory performance half a year ago, and and that. That's just so tightrope walking, you know, each piece, you know, will they, but they all know how to end together, so that means they all were together, you know, him and the drummer, and, um, but, but yeah, I think it's kind of undervalued, that kind of risk everything performance, you know, you're taking chances, you're, you're just... <laughs> you're you're hoping I think that you do hit a trance state where you play something you've never played before. There you are. That can happen, huh? Now yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and all the films I'm making, I don't know what's gonna how they're gonna look like when I finish, right? I just know there's something there. I have to do it and when it's finished I'll see it. And other people see it too now and then. And there are people around the world they like it very much. In Chicago, just some days ago, there were grown up men. They were watching my Kazuo Ono film. Mm. They, they, they cried at least right. four or five times in the middle of the film. They had tears in their eyes. I mean, I didn't do it so that people cry, but it's wonderful that they had such strong emotions, right? And that shows you the film can't be that bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very beautiful film. I'm glad I saw that. Just visiting this planet with Kazuo. With yeah. Blixer singing Schubert. Highlight in my career. <laughs> Accessing two songs from Schubert's Winterreise. Really? It's fantastic, yeah. You forgot, damn it. <laughs> I, I did forget because I, I was. Beca because I don't really know his voice standalone, uh, you know? But I can tell you an anecdote in New York where Jonas Mekia showed my films quite often. Alain Ginsberg often came to see my films. Ginsberg? Yeah, great. Right. Oh, I filmed him too, you know, uh, the film um, Hustler for Life, <laughs> 20 minute film. No, but the point is, I asked Ginsburg then once, hey, what do you like most in my film? Huh. He looks at me and says, oh, the man in the blue was singing Schubert. What's his name? I love him. That was Blixer Bargain. Wow. That's nice, isn't it? That's very nice. Considering Ginsburg died in 97, March. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Good title for a film, is it? Hustler for Life? What does it mean? I don't know, but it sounds good. <laughs> I guess it's a good title. Is it flattering? I'm not sure if it is or not. <laughs> Actually, it was a story in Village Voice, and I just took that title for my film. Wow. A story on what? Ginsburg. Oh, really? They called him that? Hustler for so. Life? I think it was. Uh, but they won't jump on me now for this short <laughs> Okay, okay. Wait, wait, let's pretend no one out there has heard of any films you've made, but they they like to be told the names of famous people. So, And I noticed you have a ginormous list of people that you'd worked with. 
in film. So pick out a few names. Start, just tell us whatever comes to mind. We understand you don't have the list in front of you. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair because, it's, it's really not fair because, especially in Germany, I have these pictures that I'm filming with famous people all the time, but you m I have to tell you this, I never asked them, they asked me. The only person I really asked was Blixer Barger in 1983, mm. would you be in my film? He said yes. Early. We were making Dandy, and then Blixer says, hey, why don't you put Nick Cave in the film? Okay, and then Nick Cave came in, and it was like a snowball. All of a sudden, Nina Hagen was there, we filmed her, and she said, I want, to make a f I want you to make a film about me. Great. Then Lemmy saw the Nina Hagen film and said, hey, we should make a film about me. It's really Great. like this. I didn't Great. ask him. And it happens all the time, so I'm pretty innocent, actually. And, <laughs> the, the, and the public or audience think, oh, Peter's running behind the famous. So it's not that way. So it wouldn't be nice for me now, as you were asking me. Oh, to, oh, to, to, to yeah, give a lit. Besides, I haven't even heard of a bunch of these people, but they'll probably be famous later. Although I must be honest, I do like to mix these famous and the non-famous. Because when you go want to be in the cinema, you do have to have, it's good to have some names. But I didn't choose them. They just stumbled in front of the camera, more or less. <laughs> I mean, Al Pacino was in Jonas in the Desert because he didn't know me, but he saw my beautiful camera, Arriflex, and Jonas was there. And I told him to make a film about Jonas. I want to be in your film. Come on. I mean, that's great. That just happens, right? It's not a big artistic Hollywood film, but um, it's really nice documentary what I'm doing, I think, filming all these people. Right, that's really worth some uh, energy. Well, well, pe well people want to be filmed making statements or, or some kind of role acting or m not even roles, just they're, they're, they're being, quote, themselves, whatever that means, unquote. I mean, people like to get something documented, I think, that, that, that's in sync with the way they perceive of themselves as an artist or a creative person or just a person trying to live as full a life as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. No. What can I say to that? I mean, what would, what would Cassandra say? <laughs> See Cassandra? Uh, who's Cassandra? Cassandra? Cassandra is an important figure oh. from the Greek mythologies. Well, the Cassandras, as I recall, is they were kind of women prophets of doom. Yeah. <laughs> then again, I, I've kicked her next to Cassandra. Pictures from my new film, uh, Animals of Art. <laughs> I, I like that. I, I've, I've actually given some thought to the idea of making films starring animals because... I get so tired of seeing just humans in film. You know, I I mean I feel that there should be a, a United Nations embracing all the animal species so that they have their survival rights. But I would put the humans in there too, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah, but but I think if there's no United Nations that includes animals that the animals are all going to be killed off which is happening right and left, and then it's just only going to be humans left. I mean, if you see the title of my two newest films, right? Animals, uh, animals of Art and Jonas in the Jungle. Oh, yeah. I have, lots of animals you're getting. The, I have lots of animals in the jungle film, too, if Jonas make us elephants and giraffes and, and you don't know what, uh, snakes and 
Ooh. ants and everything. Leopards, we have Dante text in it, Dante with a black panther, and mm. things come together. I think that the animals are just as important as the humans are question. You know, I I'm, I'm grew up in an Australian uh, wilderness, <laughs> mm. and um, I think animals are maybe much more... Well, I wouldn't say that, but they're at least as important as a human being. Exa that's what I say, at least as important as a human being. And in fact, I'd rather be around certain animals more than certain humans. What animal would you like to be? This uh, stupid question, please. The one that lives the longest. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. Like, you want I think, to be a porcupine? <laughs> no, but I mean, if you're talking about an animal with mobility, hmm. I think some of the Galapagos tortoises are several hundred years old. What's your favorite animal? I do like tortoises a lot. But, but I mean, I, I like them so much that the one time I went to the San Diego Zoo 30-plus years ago, I didn't know there was a Galapagos tortoise um, section. Mm. And I, I was just amazed when I saw it. And would you believe it, there was, there was one in, in a cave, quite a, a little shelter, quite a few feet away or yards. And, and, and I was so amazed, and I was smiling at it, and this Galapagos tortoise came straight up to me really? all the way. I wish I had a movie up to prove it. <laughs> That, I can imagine it. That, it was like this magnetism moment for me that was very special. I have these animals in my film too, animals of art. The point is not just because of animals, because of the color. <clears throat> we have an orange colored, huge, what do you say, Galapagos? Uh, what do you call these big giant animals? Tortoise? No, not tortoise, like a Galapagos. Uh, like a dragon. A dragon? Like a big red orange dragon so I film him looks into the camera and, I, and he has this orange skin or what do you call it yeah and I do an edit and then you see a painter in Germany painting a beautiful picture in the same orange oh, <coughs> so I, with my editing <coughs> I mix different worlds through the color and you're wondering but you watch and it's somehow beautiful and you cannot explain it and that's the point of art I think when you see something beautiful and you have no idea how does it work that's what I like. And this happens in my films every time, and then I'm happy. Otherwise, I have to be happy now and then, right? You didn't <laughs> like the word happy, but... You try. Let, let, let's, let's, let's not say happy, but glad. I'm really glad to see this working or functioning. I put things together, and I don't know how it works, but it works. No, you're, I, you're always hoping for what they call the unhoped for. For instance, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's... Um, Something I read in, I guess, the manifestos of surrealism many years ago. Hope for the un hope, yeah. hope for the unhoped for. <laughs> yeah, you work on a subject, and if you're so deep into it, things happen, you know. And Sometimes, yeah, I, I agree. A lot of life is a the best. A lot of my favorite moments, looking back, were definitely not pre-scripted. They were unscripted. Of course. And a lot, and they had to do with chance encounters or chance, mm, chance. and and they, um, yeah, the unexpected. <laughs> chance. <laughs> Shall yeah. I tell you how I met Blixer? Oh yeah, that? yeah. As we're talking about chance, yeah, I how did you? In my pocket. <clears throat> I think it was 1983. I was working on my first long film, Edgar Allan Poe film, by the way, The Raven. Ooh, the film I love it. The was called uh, The Wild Raven. 
This film is so sinister and dark, I'm not showing it anymore. Really? Because when you see this film, you go home and you're totally depressed. Oh, no. I'm serious. I know there are people, they like this stuff, but I'm not showing it. I had to show it some years ago at the Frankfurt Film Museum. Big honor for me. But they mm. insisted on showing every film, otherwise I don't get the retrospective. Oh, darn. So I saw my own film after many years ago, after many years again, mm -hmm. and I was really depressed. <laughs> you were depressed, even. Depressed, yeah. And you made it. I made it. <laughs> I don't know. Why are we laughing about that? Yeah, because it sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> and some friends in Hamburg, oh, Peter, show that film. No, you'll be depressed on the show. <laughs> I think I'll show it on his birthday. <laughs> That's not fine either. I know. Who posed birthday? No, your friend's yeah, birthday. Yeah, birthday. That's a good idea. Oh, yeah, that's in February, I think. Yeah. Or Black Friday, maybe. I don't know. No, we had a meet Blixer, so it was 93 in Berlin. The war was oh, still Berlin. Up. The war was still up, right? You know, the oh, East, yeah. It didn't come war. down to 89, right. And it was Sunday night, 2.30. I was going to drive back to Hamburg with my car. And I thought, oh, I'll have a look in the Risiko. Risiko means risk. That was the name of this bar in Berlin, right? And mm. Blixer was behind the counter, you say, bar? Counter? Yeah. With his very tight black, not leather, but um, what do you call these black suits? The undergrounders used to wear something like leather. More plastic leather, you know? Oh, vinyl, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very skinny, bones and skin, and he was behind the counter. It was just one man in the corner, totally drunk, sleeping in the on the foot, on the... Uh, on the... The corner? In the corner. I said to Blixer, hey, uh, let's play dice. I want a drink for a screwdriver. Orange, vodka, right? If you win, I'll pay double price. <clears throat> if I win, I get it for free. <laughs> It's like this, we play three times. With dice. Each, and then who has the highest number wins. Well, really. I drive home to Hamburg after six Oh, no. <laughs> oh, orange. no. Over a long time, Blix and me were discussing the world and talking stupid stuff, and we became friends. At that Because that of night. that. I impressed him very much, because I won every time. Six what? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> he actually told his story when we were in the Chelsea Hotel. For the Danny premiere to a San Francisco radio interviewer. Huh. <laughs> I was sitting next to him in Chelsea, and they asked him how he got to know me. This story was in San Francisco radio. How weird. But Blixer told him. It's a funny story, is it? Yeah. The point of it, but the point is, we're talking about chance. Is it possible to win six times in a row? <clears throat> so we were in Azahara with Blixer, <clears throat> and there was a scene where Blixer, there was an old, how do you say, nomad? Nomad. In the, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Sahara. And then he has a hole in the, in the sand, deep wow. down. And out of that, he gets out cold Pepsi for you. <laughs> in the what? middle of Sahara, in a no-man's land. I had seen him there the day before. So we went there, and I asked Blixer, he has to play with him dice three times. And who wins? If Blixer wins, he gets a drink for free. And if the nomad wins, um, he has to pay double. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have paid for the nomad, right? <laughs> So they played dice, and the camera filmed Blixer three times throwing a one, and a number three times a six. How bad is it? Wow. So Blixer paid double price. It's Pepsi. I'm sure the Nomad needed the money. Yeah. But then uh, the Nomad took Blixer's hand and looked into his hand and said, you had two women in your life, one ah. tall and one small. <clears throat> I don't know which way around it was, but one was uh, tall was good and the small was bad for you. And it was really true that those days. 
<laughs> and the pyramids in the back on the horizon. Wow, beautiful. Talking about talking about coincidence. Hey, you got a German grant for that to pay the airfares. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, even Blixus flight. Yeah, but then again, the grant was very, very little of the whole. Well, actually, of was the whole thing. Financially, totally wrecked after that film. Oh no! And it didn't pay either. It's the only one German TV didn't buy. No. Germany has this RTV called Dreisat, and they buy they bought a film each year, except that one. They oh. said it's too wild. I mean, nowadays... Too wild? It can't be too wild nowadays. No. I don't think I've seen that one. Actually, I'm quite... Maybe I'm happy about that, that that film was not on TV. It makes it more special. That's one way to look at it. Yeah, one way to look at it. Huh. Yeah. Then again, nowadays... You know, I have some films that are only shown by me personally. So if someone wants to see this or that film, the only chance is to rent me with my film. Oh, that's a kind of little protest that's against this computer world where you can get everything anytime, anywhere. Yeah, but free some things you cannot get anywhere except with me. Good. I I'm the same way. I don't want everything free that I've done on the internet and available anytime. I have a film that has been ripped in the internet very many times. Oh, really? Of times. Nina, yeah. I haven't seen a dime for the film. I'm sure the people who rip it down on t on the internet they would be happy to give me at least fifty cents or even yeah. a dollar. Right. And I haven't seen any, not one cent. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah. The internet from day one should have been miraculously set up with some micropayment system. For instance. You know, yeah. like built in yeah. to the way the darn thing works. Because I don't know if you can reverse engineer that in now. Well, I, I think we are in a very strange ec world economy now where, you know, wealth begets wealth. And... Um, and there, there are, there's definitely the rich are getting richer, and the and there is an increasing gap between the poor and the rich. And I'm not frankly sure what to do about it. I mean, I've read, oh yeah, we should just tax the rich and and tax, you know, every time every time you you take a Porsche out on a road, you have to pay, you know, a hundred dollars a mile tax what what's behind all this is it, it's the thinking of the people the education right this only happens because the people have these thoughts how do they get these thoughts that they can behave this way that's actually the uh, as you see in my website you have so many people many years protesting against the uh, outer world right the green how do you say the green the protest? green movement yeah the green the movement. green party what are they protesting about to save the Planet, right? Yeah, the climate, the animals, everything. Have you seen any people protesting, walking down the street and protesting for the inner life of them, of the what's happening inside of you, the way you think <laughs> and feel? I mean, that's where it begins, doesn't it? Inside. Inside, in, yeah. The interior life. Yeah. It's such an obvious thought, but I don't think people think about it very often. But that way it begins, right? You've been listening to Research Conversations podcast with host V. Vale, produced by Marion Wallace, edited by Nicola Householder. Research Conversations is brought to you by Research Publications. Thanks for tuning in.